You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. guys welcome back to another episode of this is oklahoma mike hearn here your host um very special podcast today um i've had the opportunity to watch this gentleman in front of me speak on stage and not being an american he made me want to sign up and run through a wall um i remember down at the wigwam uh in 2014 the uh the patriot all america tournament you know watching you walk up on stage and and for those of you who don't know that golf tournament you know you it's it invites all of the all americans across all divisions uh, in college golf and and have have a have a golf tournament for that um and each player carries the bag uh and and the name on the bag is of a fallen soldier um and yeah i got chills talking about it because it was such an awesome event and for me not even being an american was just like this is amazing you know uh, and that's when i was first you know first introduced to you and like i said i i wanted to sign up and run through a wall like it was imp- very empowering uh, and you gave the big hoorah at the end of the speech yeah. and, and everyone's like now we have to go play golf you know you have to be like kind of chilled out but um yeah on the podcast today uh major ed Polito, thank you so much for taking the time well what a great day to be an american and hey you know what it's a great day to be from the uk and play golf and do all the things that you've done as well it's uh, just you know what it's exciting when you get to meet some incredible people that are out there and you know that wigwam event is actually a pretty um good recipe for what you're going to see in the game of golf in the next you know three to five years and the great thing about the game is that you can see these young men uh, play and you know, and after a round, you know what? They know that they're in competition. And then the good thing is, too, you know, I don't know if you remember this part about it, but one thing that's incredible to me is to see the participatory um, action from the smaller schools. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't get a chance to be connected. And so all of these individuals have played golf around the country. They've done well. Uh, they've excelled. And how great it is they get an invitation to play at the at the Patriot All-America. Yeah, because like I said, that's, that's really the only opportunity they get to play with top D1 athletes. You know, I had a buddy of mine who's at a small school. He was up in Iowa and... You know, he played well for his for his division and got the invite. I was like, I'm 100% going because I get to compete against the best in the States. Um, but, yeah, great event, uh, and I know obviously you have a big part of that. But take me back to, um, you know, growing up. Where, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Well, that's a great question. Actually, um, you know, I was just talking about that the other day. My father was a Vietnam-era veteran. Uh, we actually grew up all over the world, and he got his citizenship um, from – the military basically he was from Colombia. my mom was puerto rican they kind of came together they, i call them oil and water coming together but they you know what it was great because the thing about it is that my father joined the military as a way to financially take care of our family and that to me was the essence of who my dad is he's still alive and I, he was a great soccer player at that you know um with the colombian uh, national team and so the thing about it is that it's just little stories like that that you know you never know about people but the thing that uh, was really inspirational about my dad was that he would put on those combat boots go to work every day and then what i decided that i wanted to join was when i actually was at the inaugural address and 
Um, and in fact, it was the inaugural address in 1981, and Ronald Reagan spoke in Washington, D.C., and when he spoke, he spoke to my heart. He said, you know what, all of us have a calling in life to do something powerful for our country, not only to serve it, but to provide support to it and to provide love. And it was the first time really where I think that my patriotism and citizenship really came to be. And so after that, I told myself at age 17, I would take the oath of office to defend the greatest nation in the world, the United States of America. Yeah. And I'm sure parents were thrilled, right? Followed dad's yeah. footsteps. Well, I guess they yeah. might have been. Dad was, you know, mom was too. And dad, you know, is a recipient of a Purple Heart. And so we understood the dangers and the issues that we face with that. And it's made a good living for me and my family. I mean, I spent over 20 years in the military. And for now, I get to do something very powerful and that stay connected to doing the philanthropy work that I do for military personnel and their families. And the great thing about all of that, to be honest with you, is that, you know, when you serve your country, you're serving a higher purpose and you're doing something uh, that goes above and beyond the call of duty. And at any time, you know, sometimes even my family says, well, I don't like the way you say that, but it is about God. It is about country and it is about family. And it, and that's in that order. And the way that you interpret it is when, you know, you've got to have some faith and in, in something. And, and in the military, faith is, is driven in you. And then your love for country. And then when you're U.S. government property, then you become that. <laughs> so it doesn't change anything. I mean, and being deployed, being away from your family, being away from your friends and your loved ones, you know, it changes you. But it also gives you inspiration and hope to know that you know what you're doing something again above yourself yeah and at that point at 17 you know you, you sign up and at 18 i guess then you go in and where was basic that time well it was funny because you say that i actually went on the delayed entry program so i get to go in at 17 i get to go drill at a at a unit and then i go to uh, fort benning georgia from Fort Benning, Georgia, I ended up at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and then Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, Fort Lee, Virginia, and did a stint and all, all of that, and then decided I wanted to go to college, and that's exactly what I was going to do. And in that process, I went to school and got my degree, and then I went what they call green to gold. And green to gold, it means that you're an enlisted service member. I was an E5 at the time, um, you know, and I was going to school. And then I get commissioned as an officer, and then that's when it really changes for you when you become a leader and you become someone that people are going to depend on you. My motto is leave no one behind on the field of battle and on the home front. And that was kind of the, 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 the recipe of success, I say, because what it did for me was it taught me that, you know, it's all about duty, honor, country. Uh, those three hollow words that, I, um, you know, General MacArthur talks about um, in, in the uh, – in, in during the World War II era and how important those words are to the essence of who we are in the military. Yeah. What time period is this? When we, what kind of years were you in college? Well, I went to, uh, actually went to college in 1986 and then in 85 is when I joined and took the oath of office. And then I, uh, in 86, my senior year, I, you know, I went to high school. And then after that, I, I'm drilling while other people on a weekend are hanging out. You know, I got chance to go and do military stuff and it was really cool and i'm not even sure if that even programs around anymore because i you know they it, it's different and how things are and they're not taking as many people as they used to but it all worked out and then of course going to college and learning you know the, the trade you know and getting all the degrees and stuff that i've received and you know it all just panned out and it all made sense to to do something again um that was going to be good for me in my future i never dreamed that or ever thought that this would happen with hitting an improvised explosive device a roadside bomb in iraq but mm -hmm. 
that's just uh, elements of what happens in, in your, you know, in your oath of office and, and you're defending this nation and defending freedom. Yeah. So when you graduate the university, you know, you said they, you become an officer after that. Where, what was next step after that? Where did you go? Well, you know, it's interesting because what happens there is you go, you become an officer in the United States Army and then they send you to school. And then I remember doing the Persian Gulf issue. And then um, soon after that is like your military career started. Um, I was with the 75th at one point, in fact, years ago, the 101st, um, then 1st Cavalry Division, and then the Second Simulation Exercise Group, which is a group out of Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which we do a lot of uh, evaluations, and we do a lot of uh, synchronicity-related activities as it, as it relates to connecting the, the different forces together, whether National Guard, Reserve, and active duty, and how all the components will work mm -hmm. together on the battlefield. Um, and that's what battle simulation is. And the thing about it is that all of this, that, uh, the cool thing about the military today is that it's transformed into um, something that, 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 you know, for years, you know, these are the way we fought wars. Now we're fighting wars this way. A lot of conventional, a lot of light infantry, light tactics. Um, and all of it just really shapes itself to having the best military in the world. Yeah. And you went through all of that while technology was getting more advanced and more advanced and more advanced too, right? You bet. And the thing about it is that it's even getting advanced now. I mean, our new field artillery pieces that they're putting together down there, BAS systems, I believe, or BAE systems, I believe, is uh -huh. got that contract. You go down to Fort Sill, you're going to see them on the side of the road. You've, you've seen the different armaments that are coming out, the different, you know, air uh, combat operational equipment uh -huh. that we have. Um, and you know f-22 the 35 now we've got the navy rolling out new yeah. ships um you know it all you know really looks like it's a footprint for success and you know whether one administration does it or not the thing about it is that i just say that in this in this world it's a bad world and having an elite force like the navy seals which i do a lot with um as friends and then also our rangers and our special forces and and then just our general people that do everything tactically, that the war has changed in that the way we fight things, that everyone, and what I learned about Iraq and, and Afghanistan and this footprint that we're in right now with, with the different um, elements of, of, you know, of issues that we face around the world and, the, and a diverse enemy, that we all have to be um, uh, soldiers on the, on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Well, what that means is for the listeners out there, it means that as a soldier on the battlefield, you're going to have ladies and women driving trucks. You're going to have individuals that may have not went to school for that functional area, and now they're doing that work. And the thing is, you're an infantryman first, an yeah. infantrywoman first. And you have to say it that way because when you trained, that's what you trained in basic training to do mm -hmm. yeah. is to be a trained killer. And what this war has done that's differently than other wars is conventionally has everyone on the battlefield um, doing different things. And, for example, I've had a lot of people ask me, what's a major doing driving on the roads of Iraq? You know what? That's a new footprint. That's yeah. a new conventional way that we do things. We didn't have up-armor vehicles. We're just running around like a bunch of renegades. It reminded me of a Mad Max movie. But you know yeah. what? That's how it is. That's how it works. And for the listeners out there that know and been in that footprint, understand uh, that that's the new warfighter mentality, and that's what we're all about, lighter. Um, we're doing something right now with a, with a, um, a, 
armament that you'll be able to shoot out of the different weapon systems, it's way, way much lighter than the old brass. Uh, yeah. It's called True Velocity. And so for the listeners out there, go to TrueVelocity.com and see this new bullet that's coming out. But that's just an example of just one small little footprint that really makes the warfighter and those special operators um, the best they can be on the battlefield. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, like I said, you, you, you're starting your military career, you've graduated, you know, you're going into all that. Um, when, how quick was it before, you know, you went on your first tour? Well, it was interesting. I, when I ended up getting out of the military and not getting out, but I ended up going on in the active reserve uh, component side of the house. And the thing that that taught me is that, man, there's a lot of people here that have a lot of experience. Yeah. They were just people that were just decided, hey, they didn't want to do a military career on a full time basis like that and deploy and, and mobilize. And not only that, but, um, you know, when you're when you're going and you're actually going to a new duty station, and that takes a toll on your family moving mm-hmm. 10, 15 times. And so all of that said, um, what ended up happening is that I ended up deciding that I wanted to go and, and do this kind of work and be on that stage and teach and uh, be what they call a platform, um, you know, a, a platform um, professor, you may say, or, or platform trainer. That's a better way to yeah. say it. And uh, our job was to be subject matter experts in whatever field we, we were in. So whether we were doing our field artillery operational stuff to signal operations, and those are the different mm-hmm. groups within the system of the military that everybody has a functional area that they do um, to the infantry, to oh, everybody just basically connects on the battlefield. Um, that was kind of my calling. I love that yeah. kind of stuff because it was kind of, you know, in, in the mix right now. And so in doing that, I was out probably a year and a half uh, from the military, and then I and you end up getting a call back. And what happened is 2001 happened. Yeah. Um, they started calling their people back and saying, hey, we need you. Um, and you know what? I came back to decide that, you know what? This is my calling. You train for war. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it that way, but for anybody out there that served, if you don't go to war, I mean, it's one of those things where why, you know, you train and you train. Yeah, it's good to go to college. It's good to travel. It's good to all do all things. But the reason you do all of that is to defend this country or defend mm-hmm. another another nation. And and it's like the fireman. And this is the metaphor I use. It's like the fireman going to the, the fight the fire. If he doesn't have the water hose, uh, what's the purpose behind right. it? I mean, that's yeah, he can save some lives, but he needs every piece of equipment. And mm-hmm. that, to me, was the essence of why... Um, when I got that call in 01, you know, I knew, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And, and you know what? I was off to the races, and, and it wasn't until 2004 till this, uh, you know, big event happened in my yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, during all this time, like, you've obviously, you know, you've met your wife, and, and had you had your kids by then? So by 2001, you had a wife and kids. Yeah, I had a wife, and then I had a, a little two-and-a-half-year-old at the time when I yeah. left. So I deployed in 02. Um, January. In fact, I got called up January 27, 2002. You don't forget stuff like that, <laughs> um, even though you have a traumatic brain injury from what happened to me. Yeah. But yeah, we we get called up and then all of a sudden um, we're ramping up, man. Afghanistan's hot now because of what happened on September 11th. Uh, we've had operators in there now for uh, September 11th happens. We've had operators in there for about six, seven months. Yeah. Now we got to start getting some type of ground force collected um and so we begin to start training units to deploy and that was our that's our job yeah. is to make sure that these units are connecting to the active duty so that when the force goes over there everyone's force integrate is what it's called and you do a three-month train up and then all of a sudden you're you're to the races and yeah. so you know oh two happened and that's exactly what we did and we were teaching 
um, and training all over the country uh, to get our forces ready. And then in 2003, when they went into Iraq, that's when everything changed because the, the operational footprint changed to where now we were going in and we were basically taking another country and making sure that the whether there were arms, uh, weapons of mass destruction or not, just to the listeners out there, it's very important for them to know there were weapons of mass destruction components. Yeah. Whether the mass destruction bombs were there, that's maybe a different story. But there was ricin. There was um, other type of biological and chemical weapons. I mean, yeah. we were in Taji where they were, they had been making these bomb making materials for years. Yeah. On the other hand, they cheated too, and they lied and they said this stuff was going on and they were in production, but. Um, you know, the say, you're going to say have positives and negatives about it. I'm just giving you the, yeah, the downright no, what I saw on the battlefield. And to see these weapons-making plants kind of gave you an eye of why we would have thought that there were weapons yeah. of mass destruction. Yeah, they definitely had the opportunity to do it. Yeah, you know? and, they, and, and Saddam knew what he, was, yeah. what he was up to. And I think he conned the, 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 um, the international community. But the other thing, too, is he used those weapons on the Iranians yeah. years before. So you can't tell me that... Um, that we had no understanding. And what we found is that there were uh, many weapons that could be used for that. And if it got in the wrong hands, guess what? They're going to employ them against our forces and right. our people. Yeah. So tell me about the day that you flew out. What was that like? Well, you know, flying out and it, it's Was it's it just more than one day? No, everything's done. Like it. So you leave my footprint of, of departure or uh, of travel was down near Fort Bliss where this major incident just happened with the shootings. And the thing about it is you've, I traveled from Fort Bliss, specifically on 04. That was when that mission occurred. And uh, I was a, what they call an advisor. So I was going over there to do exactly what we do here, yeah. except we were going to do it with the Iraqi army yeah. and stand them up. And I was in, in charge of the, uh, of the uh, S2 operational uh, aspects of my work. And then uh, I was also in charge of anything personnel related. And the reason that that was important is because my job was to make sure that these individuals that were in our, in these Iraqi units, that uh, we knew that whether they were good or bad, like if they were some bad people, we kind of would be able to fish them out yeah. and, um, and then not disrupt the training that we were having. And so it's dangerous work, man. And so we deployed from Fort Bliss. We ended up in Baltimore. In Baltimore, we took a, a plane out to Frankfurt. And from Frankfurt, we flew into Kuwait. And then we in Kuwait, we go in. And so yeah. I tell people, I was at Camp Wolverine with these tents. And um, there were all these people from these different countries. And it was nothing. It was in the middle of the desert. And you land in this bad-to-the-bone airstrip yeah. in the middle of the desert. And you're like... Who lives here? You know, or is there anything going on here? But it's an, a base outside of, um, of a, a couple of other Arif Jans right near there, which is another base. And then you land and you're there, and it, it's like a tent city, man. It's, yeah. it, there's tents everywhere, and there's people moving and equipment moving, and uh, people going into the combat zone. And, yeah. And it's just it, it, that, that's when you know that you're going in. Right. And uh, not yeah. that we didn't go in before, because that was different, but this is like. Okay, what's it like now, a year and a half, two yeah. years later, after the first the, the initial excursion? Yeah. What was it like, you know, you, know you, you are boots on the ground, like your boots are in the desert. Like, what, what was that like? What was that feel like when you were around everybody as well? Well, number one, it was, uh, um, it's, you miss home. Mm -hmm. You miss the amenities of uh, the love that you have for your country. Uh, and you're sitting in this really I'm sorry to say it some people like it I'm I'm just not a big fan of the desert like that yeah. but in this miserable 120 130 degree place 
you're burning up, you're on a, you're training, you're getting equipment ready, and uh, you're going into the to the what they what we call a, a hot LZ mm. um, or a hot zone. And you know Afghanistan's the same way. You're going into a hot zone. The difference is though is in Afghanistan you had a different footprint in that when you go there, um, what you're seeing on the ground. And that's what I mean by a footprint. What you see on the ground is totally different from what you saw in Iraq. Okay. So Iraq, you had more people that were a little bit more organized, a little bit more uh, mentally competent relating to tactical um, uh, aspects of, of, of hitting our forces. And then, um, you know, they were more of a cohesive group of, of insurgency. It was a huge insurgency. They were killing people. Yeah. I mean, you know, it wasn't nothing to see 40, 60, 80 uh, a month, um, I think maybe 80 may be a high, high number, but if I recall, it was 40 to 60, yeah. and that was consistent. So IEDs, and then the Iranians were supporting that. And in Afghanistan, it's a little harder to get there with mm -hmm. the, some of those bomb-making materials, so the Iranians were bringing the bomb-making materials. And so I'm just setting it up to knowing that when you land there, you know it's hot. Yeah. And at any time, the enemy is going to be within, and you have to be ready, and you have to use your training and take your and have taken your training seriously. Right. So you were on the ground. You said 03? Uh, 03, 04, and then in 04, yeah. I was there when I got hit by that yeah. roadside bomb. Did you come home in that time, or were you there? Yeah, the and then I went to Honduras too. So what you do is you go from, you know, you kind of just transfer from place to place, mm -hmm. and then the military's got what yeah. they call um, jurisdiction of you. Right. And so you go from place to place, and you're just part of the operational um, group that's doing something mission-related. Yeah. And the missions don't quit. I mean, there was missions going in Djibouti, Africa. There was in Yemen, yeah. uh, Somalia, um, you know, in the, cent in the Central American countries. Um, and then, of course, in Colombia and places like that. So all of that said, you know, you have Central Command who's in charge of everything related to that Middle Eastern area of operation. And then... You got South, Southern Command, which was who I work for too. So Central Command, Southern Command, and Southern Command was in charge of everything in South America yeah. and Central America. So then, when you go back in '04 and the incident happens and you get hit, how long were you there before that happened? Well, it was interesting. We were there for about four. I was there. I got there around uh, late April, okay. uh, mid-April. It's like say uh, late April, and then um, and, and the reason that I say mid-April is because you, there's a lot of transition time right. that goes through that. Um, Battle of Fallujah was going on. Uh, that a lot of the things that uh, were happening was we were doing a lot of uh, operational stand-up, which meant that we've already taken the country um, and um, and we're there doing host nation support with its mm -hmm. people. Um, you know, we even had a veterinarian, 68 years old, traveling with us, and we're yeah. like, "What are you do? What are you doing with us?" You know. Yeah. But the thing about it, he was there to make sure the animals were okay and that the food products were good and everything. And and so you bring people like that as subject matter experts. So it was interesting to see all of that dynamic. And we go in, and and this is April, and then, you know, we're setting up. And then the great thing that happened while I was there, which was actually a historical thing, is we gave power back to the Iraqis. Yeah. Um, it was, I think, July 20. 829 something like that we actually told the iraqis and it was supposed to be um i'm sorry it was june 29th or whatever it was and then we gave them final hey you have your country sort of back yeah um is and then that happened um uh what we call a change of command basically and then that happened in uh late june early july okay. of 2004 which is pretty pretty yeah. neat because i you know you saw all of the dignitaries coming in Colin Powell to 
uh, Mr. Armitage to all these different people from the Department of State, right? And uh, that were there because it is now a Department of State sort of operation too, because you're mm-hmm. in a foreign country, you're setting up a embassy, which is the biggest one in the world, one of yeah. the biggest ones in the world, and it's right there in the Middle East. Um, it doesn't get any bigger than right. that, right? Yeah. So. What what was like the mission the day that you got hit? What do you remember about that day? What well, do you remember I, anything? I remember a lot about that day. I remember getting up at five o'clock in the morning like I usually did. The sun comes up real early in the morning at, in those places, mm-hmm. and the sun was coming up. As it rises, you see what's getting ready to happen, and you know what? It's about time that you start to dictate what's what the operational um, plan is going to be for that day. And so we did a sand table and, and we did with our, we had these combat escorts with us. We were going to a new operating base and we all sat around a sand table and said, here's what we'll do. It's called what we call a rehearsal so that everybody that, and maybe you might have one or two new people. Um, we know we talk about the route. We talk about the map. We talk about, um, the sequence of events. We talk about the leadership on the ground, command and control, uh, I mean, those are not just words to me. Right. They're like what I call military decision-making processes where all of it has to coincide. And, and then all of a sudden you have a vehicle convoy. Someone has to be vehicle com- commander to the vehicle commanding aspects of it, to uh, accountability of your personnel, yeah. all of those things. And It's not just jumping in the car and driving to no, the next and, and, and everyone has a specific mission, and that specific mission has to be carried out. So that's exactly what happened. And we left at about um, early in the morning, about 9 o'clock in the morning or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, by 12.04 in the afternoon, in the heat of the day, I got hit by a roadside yeah. bomb. Was, was anyone else affected? Yeah, I was with my colonel, and I was driving the vehicle, and my guys in front said, IED, IED. And you heard it through the radio, but you don't know where it's at. Right. And then I look over there, and I'm like, oh, man. That looks bad. It's right there, yeah. And I could see where there was just like a lip in the pavement or in the asphalt, and you're like, this doesn't look right. Yeah. And that's how you detect them. They'll, they'll put these IEDs in, car- in, in uh, pet carcasses or animal carcasses to a trash. So you kind of know yeah. kind of how to – so when you see trash, you kind of move to the, the right, left. Um, and that's kind of the command and control aspect of it. But on that day – we saw the lip, and then there was some debris around it. And you could tell that something else probably had exploded there before. Right. And it was in a good spot because as you're going around, you have to take a turn. And that's exactly where they want to hit you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, like, so it happens, right? You get hit. Yeah. And, and got, you know, the, you're driving a Humvee at the time. No, right? an no? SUV. So you're just driving just a normal yeah, car? Yeah, normal uh, Toyota Land Cruiser. No way. Yeah. Wow. And the, and the good thing is that's what saved my life. Really? Yeah, because the arm, the, the in a Humvee, you hit a, a bomb like that. What's what it's going to do is basically come out of the ground. And the good thing about it is that it, I didn't hit that thing flush. Um, Glancing that's blow good type thing. Yeah. Because what happens is they they self detonate, so they're doing a countdown, and so if you you know, I might have put my right. my leg on the brake yeah. and knowing that maybe something was there and, and I'm trying to turn the wheel and that's exactly kind of what happened. And yeah. so I didn't hit it point blank. It came out of the ground. So you're saying someone was watching you drive by and... Yeah, and, and that's okay. how they detonated. Yeah. So they're, they're probably counting from one vehicle to another, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. And then they kind of time it. But if one vehicle's off, 
Right. They're not able to time it as effectively. And I think that's what happened to me. My vehicle was off because I was actually driving faster right. and closer. And yeah. that was the timing off where um, where I was a little bit farther behind, but I was trying to catch up. And so they yeah. so in essence, I wasn't too close to that vehicle in front of me, but I was trying to catch up yeah. based on on the speed, the rate of speed that we were going and those were Humvees in front of me. Yeah. And so that's what they were driving. And we were the soft targets in the middle. And so um, the good thing about it is it didn't hit me flush. If it yeah. would have, I don't think I'd be here. And yeah. if it would have been in a Humvee, then what happens is that metal, when the metal explodes, it's like cutting you. It's gotcha. like a cutting board because that okay. stuff cuts you and just tears you to pieces. Yeah. And that would have been death. Right. Um, because I would have hit the bomb. That thing would have been so heavy. It probably would have been engulfed in flames. Yeah. And the thing about it is you can't, you, you've been hit, and whatever's been broken in there is probably in you. Right. And that's the way that, that shrapnel works. Yeah, yeah. So after it goes off, did they attack? Did no, they? they well, we had a bunch of onlookers, and then there was kind of like a, 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 a form of – see, they don't attack that way. Okay. And the thing is, is that's why it's so different than NOM and – you know, you're not fighting a, a conventional force. From me, like, like a, yeah, like me, like a non-military person would think they, you know, they'd ambush you, they'd attack, they yeah, got you upon no, a weakness, right? They do what they call scat. I call them scat tactics, where yeah. they, they they hit and run, right? And they'll shoot a couple of, of shots at you, throw some rockets into your area of operation, and then that's it. Just the hope that they hit so, something. So yeah, and they hit. They hope they hit some. So it's not very conventional, and, yeah. or it's not very trained. Um, oriented but the thing about it is that what you'll find is is that um that's how the whole thing works and so it's incredible to kind of see that if they were a very well-trained force what would that look like and what right. would happen you know yeah. how many casualties would yeah. we incur so this happens obviously everybody goes into training you know everyone yeah. like training kicks in everyone is yeah. around you and everybody else that's affected mm-hmm. um do you wake up in a hospital somewhere? What or do you no, do you no. remember? So this is kind of how this works. So I get hit. Combat medic comes up. Um, what happens with your vehicles disabled like that? Somebody comes. Somebody starts rendering aid. Combat medic pulls me out of the vehicle, puts me on 128 degree pavement, basically, and starts to <laughs> render aid yeah. to me. So that's what happens there. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like. Um, one thing leads to another. We create a 360-degree perimeter. We keep the onlookers away. We keep the insurgency away. They try to detonate another IED is what I heard, and that dud it out. So all of a sudden, then we create 360. We throw white smoke to, to basically shield the enemy f- from us, and then red, red smoke to identify somebody was down. Okay. And I was a casualty. And then what happens there is that it's clockwork. So someone's in charge. Uh, Sergeant First Class Villarreal was in charge of calling in for air support Mm -hmm. and then you have someone else that calls in for medevac yeah and then it's just done so simultaneously and so the red smoke is about um, Uh throwing the the stuff down on the ground yeah yeah, yeah. and when you throw the stuff on the ground it basically Uh lets somebody know that look somebody's down and that's how it all works and then 47 minutes later i'm on a helicopter headed to baghdad yeah and then i spent 17 hours in surgery blood transfusions and from there you go from baghdad to germany and then i ended up at uh, Walter Reed, and then which is now closed, and then Brook Army Medical Center, um, which is now in San, Ant- what's still San Antonio, Texas, called Bamsey, and it's the tier one freaking yeah. uh, medical center in the world for our military because they have all the amputees, and then they have all of the uh, anyone that has been burned. And so I was a burn victim 
um, but also an amputee. So right. I had two things going at once. Yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah, yeah. pretty so, powerful stuff. I mean, obviously, you know, like the wife gets phone call. Yes, you know, and she then gets well, a phone call. I'm in Baghdad. Actually. Right. When was yeah. the first time you spoke to your wife? Well, you know, they handed me the phone. General Petraeus came and awarded me with Purple Heart <laughs> three days later or something, and it hands me the phone, and I'm like as jovial as I can be right now. Yeah. I'm gonna tell you something. When you're in that situation, what happens to you is you become very astute, astute to how you used to be, and you're in this crisis, and your body goes into shock. Yeah. And you're in shock, but you, but your brain is working in a different way. It's right. a, the weirdest thing. No pain that I feel on once I went into shock. No, my equilibrium and head was in total different disarray. But I'm on the phone like, yeah, I'm going to be okay. I'm coming back. I mean, that's, not, that's right. why some people on the battlefield, you've heard stories of, yeah, this guy was just freaking absolutely nuts. He yeah. decided to go and fight the enemy. And he's like, let's go, you know, and he's all fired. But it's yeah. just that the brain kicks into some different gear. That's what happened. And so when I called my wife, my wife's like, well, he didn't sound that bad <laughs> until you get back <laughs> to the States thing, and you're right? missing a leg and yeah. you're getting ready to miss a leg and freaking yeah. your brain's rattled. And then that's when I knew that, you know, after four or five days, man, you're, you start smelling like alcohol, yeah. your body does. And you're like, man, something's up. And it, and your brain's kind of finally coming back to, to reality yeah. what happened and you just like wake up from a bad dream yeah wow yeah. um all right we're gonna take a quick ad break we'll uh we'll pick up like i said life after you know the event uh real quick so everybody listen stay tuned quick ad break we'll be back soon cheers hey guys quick ad break here i'm gonna be selfish uh some of you may or may not know uh i am a real estate agent i work in real estate that's the day job Although the goal is to make this podcast my full-time gig, I still have to pay the bills. So uh, shameless plug, if anybody's looking for a real estate agent, interested in getting into real estate investing, um, you know, want to buy your first home, want to sell one, move out of state, move into state, uh, send us a DM. We'd love to help, even if you just have questions. Uh, we'd love to help you guys out. Uh, you know, this is an amazing state. A lot of people like to move here or should move here. So if you want to move to the state or just move to a different city in the state, uh, reach out, send us a DM at This Is Oklahoma. I work for a real estate company called Ryan Johnson Realty and would love to help you guys out. So shameless plug over. Let's get back to today's episode with Major Ed Polito. What's going on, guys? Welcome back. Um, yeah, so we were just talking about, you know, like the 24 hours after the accident happens, um, you know, speaking to, to your wife and you're like, yeah, I'm fine. And then you fly back to the States and she's like, where's your leg gone? Yeah. And then I'm in ICU. Yeah. And that's when it, it changed. And the, the thing that really changed, though, to be honest with you, is um, I'm one of those people that I'm very jovial. And sometimes I, I've never been that person like to tell you, I mean, I, I, I always feel like what a great day. You know? Yeah. And, and maybe that was, I'm thinking my mind and brain was operating in that mode as opposed to the mode that should be operating in that like, oh man, I'm down. And, but because the reason I tell you that it wasn't until the uh, soon after that I started realizing, man, I'm in trouble. Right. Like this ain't, this is no joke. Like when you wake up and you start looking at your leg and it's like got, you know, 80 something pins in it mm. and rods and, and, um, and you're looking down and they're like, I don't think that's going to work. And it's in a massive pain and yeah. that pain is rattling up and down your back and your pel my pelvis was broken and, and done. My arm is completely severed um, and still hanging on right here, you know, and mm -hmm. I'm just like, 
you know, and then you start kind of coming down from the medication that they've given you and the blood transfusions. And then all of a sudden I end up in at San Antonio when I learned that I had E. coli, two staph infections, a chemical agent, some type of chemical agent in my leg from the bomb, whatever yeah. that festered in there. And then um, E. coli. And so <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden it's like, dang, where did I get all of this from? And, and that's when it that's when the game changes. And so then you start dealing with your mental and physical and the mental becomes more of a of a deterrent like man this isn't going to be good this isn't going to work right. out well and i went from uh, 195 to 118 pounds in like about a stretch of about 40 days yeah so that kind of tells you how that all yeah 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 trans- that and works. and they amputated above or below the knee above the knee and they amputated on october 1st so they saved it for a little while and they started trying to take some pieces from my other parts of uh-huh. my body and uh, that wasn't going to work yeah. and so we knew that um the dangers of, of of what had just happened to me that uh, amputation was the only thing left to do and then the next thing was also possible amputation of my left arm and i'm glad that they didn't take it yeah 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 because yeah. now you can still play golf that's right <laughs> some other things that I <laughs> yeah do. exactly yeah. um so and touching on the mental side of things you know a lot of people that's it for them right you know their life's over there's a lot of ptsd uh, and just everything that comes with that um but like you said you know you just your personality to just today's the best day ever hey i'm still alive um you know how long was it before you started going down the route that you're at now and what you do now with you know the folds of honor and and warrior for freedom and just all that was that kind of like hey this is what i'm going to do with my life now yeah you know so it was interesting that that the it that time that really enabled me to think at in that regard was when i went to sun valley idaho and i got an opportunity to snow ski um, adaptively. It's called adaptive skiing, and they have these programs out there. And the military, uh, after all of these, uh, after the war started like this, the military really did a great job of taking action, of not necessarily taking action on some things, but taking action on recreational activities. I mean, they built the Intrepid Center down in San Antonio, which somebody's getting ready, to, a friend of mine is actually getting ready to go to as we speak from the combat mm-hmm. zone and tragically hit over the weekend, um, Ranger lost an arm and a leg. So he's coming down to Brook Army Medical Center, and, and he's probably there right now. That's yeah. from, the, from our Afghanistan. So the war's still going on. But what we ended up doing is utilizing um, some new techniques to do things. I remember at Brook Army Medical Center, and this is great for listeners to know, because this is how it worked. They didn't have anything adaptive down there. So we made a recommendation that they should have a room where you could, like, when you go home, this is what it's going to look like in your kitchen, yeah. in your bedroom. You know, I mean, everything from utilizing the restroom to doing things, everything is adaptive. It's yeah. changed. Um, and I tell people that it's not as easy as you may think because you're hopping on one leg or you're learning how to walk on crutches. I mean, and balance is an issue. Your body's still kind of unbalanced out. And so, but I went to Sun Valley, Idaho, and this is the point to that, is that I met these people that were Paralympians, and I saw that the, the utilization of sport for them was, was the key to their success. And so I will tell you that for any amputee out there, sport is the key to success. No matter what kind of adaptive thing you may do, you may mm-hmm. play, you know, adaptive basketball, adaptive tennis, adaptive this or that and then i went to the endeavor games which they have up there in uco and i live here and i meet these other people and i learned that you know what adaptively 
Um, you know, my mission is I'm going to do the sport and all these various sports, archery, et cetera, golf. But I'm but my really my passion is work. Yeah. So I really told myself what I want to do is I want to get back to work, get back on my feet. And eventually what my goal and objective is, is to go out and uh, eventually raise money for not only the young man who saved my life, because that's kind of why I do the things I do for Warriors for Freedom, mm-hmm. um, but also to do something purposeful for, um, you know, the families of the fallen, wounded, and disabled, yeah. two folds of honor. And that's how all of that got started. Um, joined Major Dan Rooney, the F-16 fighter pilot. Uh, he's now a PGA golf professional there in Owasso, Oklahoma, Tulsa area. And, um, you know, the Folds of Honor was born to honor the sacrifice, educate the legacy, about 130 million raised so far, and in 21,000 scholarships, plus another four to 5,000 scholarships this year. So as you can see, we're going to yeah. put about 25 million out the door this year. And the thing about it is that that's when you really truly know that you've done something for right. someone else. Yeah. And then this year, something happens, amazingly happens. You have Gary Woodland win the oh, US yes. Open, you know, and he's covered it, you know, he's got his fold and folds of honor crest on him. And Ain't that cool? And then the thing about Gary Woodland is he's wearing the shoes, he's wearing all of the gear, and uh, part of percentage of the win, and he, he donated back to folds, yeah. um, you know, I'm sure a donation. And, you know, he didn't have to do that. But the thing about it, I remember seeing him the first time I, and I know a lot of the PGA Tour players. Mm-hmm. I do a lot with John Daly. Um, Ken Duke's a, a favorite of mine, um, you know, Ricky Fowler. Uh, all the and a lot of senior guys, laymen, and um, in fact, I'm gonna I, I see I'm gonna see uh, um, Tom Pernice here at, at Bear Creek in California over the weekend, mm-hmm. and that's Ricky Fowler's home course. Uh, he's from California, and yeah. his dad, of course, lives there. And you know, Mickelson, all these people, Tiger, all of them. You know, you kind of see them now that I've been in the circuit for almost uh, 11, 12 years now, and I've, I've been around the PGA of America, who's a big sponsor of what we do, the United yeah. States Golf Association, because USGA does the U.S. Open, and then the PGA of America does the PGA Championship, and then the others, of course, the Masters is the other jewel right. of what we do, um, but, you know, you've got the British Open as well, and really, I haven't even had any experience or connection to that, but, mm. you know, when you're talking about winning a major and Gary Woodland does it, and he did it in a sense that I don't think I think people were doubting him. Since oh he yeah, was everybody was like, "Kepka's coming back. He's going to yeah. win this." No yeah. one expected Woodland he, to win. He'd, he'd been there. Kepka yeah. had been there. So, but you know what? He stuck with it, and he put he, he he did well, and he didn't do what he did at the Barracuda Championship um, when I was there, and that was on he was on the move. And I remember him playing the 18. And if you recall at the Barracuda Championship, there was a journeyman that. Had, started 300 times or something mm. and he finally won so it was a really good feel-good story but i was rooting for gary because right. i was wanting gary to win because um, we would get twenty-five thousand dollars out of it too for yeah. the foundation but he didn't but you know after he got off the course he said you know i learned a, a valuable lesson and it's and it's like because he was up a, a one or two shots and then um, he he messed up on that 18. He hit the fringe. Yeah. And I remember the ball bounced back from the rocket. If you've ever been to Montrose, that's a really cool course. Okay. And on that 18 hole, there's like a little area where water runs, a little creek runs with rocks uh-huh. right before you get to the hole. So you got to make it over that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the players will make it, or, or you, the best shot really is to put it right yeah. in front but since he was a, a shot back, he decides, hey, I'm going to put it, I'm going to go for the, right. I got to go for the win. Got to go for it, yeah, yeah. And the other guy 
put it there, and Gary's just yeah. bounce, just it, just you know, yards. I mean, that's how close it yeah. was from being a great shot to yeah, a definitely. shot that he ended up having to take. I think a bogey on. So. Yeah. So tell us about what you do now. I know you, you know you do a lot of speeches and stuff, but kind of how has that evolved? You know, in the last, I guess it's what it's been. 10, 15 years, I guess. Yeah, My so math's terrible. The great thing about all of that is that it's, it's evolved. You know, we the foundations have grown. Everything that we've done has grown. Even little Warriors for Freedom. I mean, they they their foot their their um their area of operations here in the state of Oklahoma. And really, the premise behind when we started them was that we took a bunch of uh, uh, individuals to play golf in Ireland. That's really how that organization yeah. started. And now we're um, you know they're working on a little golf program. I don't really you know I don't do as much as I I. I, I would want to do with them yeah. because of my work at Folds and, 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 and trying to keep things separate. And the national organization is a big, big organization. We have a, la- a big national uh, platform that we're on and it mm. keeps me busy. But, um, you know, we started that organization, Brad Dick and I, and it was really just to keep the suicide rate down. We've done a great job in Oklahoma, but I've got to tell you, nationwide right now, it's an epidemic. And yeah. it's, and the reason it's an epidemic is because um, we have a lot of people with traumatic brain injuries. We have a lot of people that are dealing with um, with issues related to just general stress every day. And I know I feel it at times with different yeah. things I've got going on. And sometimes that, that may be the way out. And so, you know, if we can make a difference and we could tell people that that's not a way out, that going out and playing golf – or going shooting or doing something purposeful. That's what yeah. we do with these veterans um, is that we give them opportunities to be connected to their community through peer-to-peer support, that we're making a difference in that regard, and that's what we're all about. And the golf program, I think, for for a lot of these veterans um, is twofold. One is they go and play golf, and two, it's a way for me to recruit them for our scholarship opportunity. Yeah. And, and you know, I've always – everyone's asked me, well, why – why would you start another organization and this and that? And I'm just going to put it out there in this way. Um, the reason that I did, I, I, I felt like there was a calling. It was one, there was a calling from God, and two, there was a calling from my country and my state. And it was General Rita Aragon, General Deering, and some other uh, dignitaries here in the state who said, you know, we got to do something for what is going on here. Right. And, um, and I don't get to spend as much time with this organization as I should, but I do will say this, is that... Um, they are doing great work, and I'm glad that there's an organization here that if I have someone that I need to send uh, for help to get them help, that we have someone that's yeah. going to be ready to provide that support right. and that peer-to-peer engagement, which is critical to um, to life success. Yeah, and since since the event, have you been back to speak to the desert? Uh, you know, I did um, years ago. I went on a, uh, an excursion to the desert. Um, it's it's one of those things that they call coming home, but kind of having closure. Right. I really didn't get anything out of it, to yeah. be honest with you. And the reason I didn't get anything out of it, it wasn't that I, I um, didn't feel that the trip was, was fruitful, because that's not what I'm saying with it. Yeah. What I'm saying that's was, this fruitful is that it's very, very hard to go back to – something somewhere where it's like there's nothing here right and as much as what happened there it was it was great to see maybe the area smell the yeah. place but it's kind of going back to a hellhole i, I guess go back to and yeah. just i don't know do something 
yeah. um, above and beyond myself. But on the other hand, where it is fruitful is that there were other people that did get something out of it. Good. And and I would lie to you and say that that you know that it was the best thing I could have ever done. Right. I, there's other things that I've done that have been better. Yeah. And that one was for some it was closure, and for me there will never be closure because the thing about it is that you don't know who attacked you. The whereabouts are a little bit sketchy. Right. And um, and then the the, the the way that the place is operating now is totally different. Mm. You're not operating under that umbrella of, of the things that you were going through. Taji doesn't look the same anymore. There's still the same landmarks yeah. and stuff, but it's a it's like a, 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 a true military base now. Right, not just a sea of tents. No, and a sea of tents <laughs> and a... And, yeah. and, and barracks where these Iraqis used to live that were all beat up. And yeah. It may still be some of that, but it's different. It's different. They have a dining facility. It's like a, an operational base. Yeah. And, you know, when you see that and you see what you, you, were, you saw before, you know that times have changed. And it's been 15 years. Yeah. So you see where I'm going with that? That like yeah. what you saw 15 years ago is not necessarily what you see right. 15 years later. And this is exactly what's happened in Oklahoma City. It's like the, so the great thing is people have those memories of what it looked like in 15 years right. ago. But what it looks like now is totally different. Okay. Yeah. So to the to present day, you know, we just spoke before that September is really big month for you. You're very busy. Tell us a little bit about, you know, like your schedule for the next couple of months. What's yeah, leading up? Next couple of months. So we have Patriot Golf Day coming up. Patriot Golf Day is over Labor Day weekend. Golfers and golf courses can sign up all over the country. We'll have, you know, thousands of golf courses participating. We have events going on every week, one, two a week. Uh-huh. And then we'll have events going on all through September, October. And then November kind of everything starts to change and it's interesting because you know golf yeah. so you start going to southern california arizona down in houston yeah. and in florida and I, and so patriot golf day for us changes because now we change to the snowbird uh, states as i call them and uh and then the great thing about it is we have events going on down there and it keeps us busy all year round and that's what the love of, of this is all about and major rooney you know what he started is pretty fruitful in that uh, we're everywhere now, and yeah. uh, we're st- we've got people like Budweiser. We've got Quick Trip up in Tulsa. Here we've got many companies. We have a chapter now here in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Monica Woodward does a great job with that, and uh, and then we have events going on on our calendar on a monthly basis now, and it's great to see the synergy behind the movement and the mission, and and um, I'm just glad that Major Dan gave me a chance to do something purposeful, and I've taken advantage of it, and I'm going to continue to move forward and and do great things um, as God would want us to yeah. do. What's kind of your plan for the future then? My plan for the future, so I wrote a book called Warrior for Freedom. I've done that. That was one of my goals and objectives. I, I'm going to be doing a lot more podcast stuff, mm-hmm. media. Um, me and a friend of mine named Kyle Golding, we're involved in that on a project with what we're doing yeah. today. Um, this is where the, everything's going. Uh, information is key. Stories are key. Yeah. Um, people don't just want to hear somebody just talk about what their political affiliations are and who they hate and dishate yeah. and dislike or like, but um, to talk about substance issues, to talk about the coffee company, to talk about things that are happening in this country that are changing the way that we do mm-hmm. business and the way that we should look at America. And, you know, with, with all of the talk about it, it actually makes me sad of racism, of, yeah. of, of um, social injustices, and, and the talk about the fact that, you know, we bash our police and our fire and, 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 our, and even our military. Mm-hmm. And then we bash whoever's in office 
and we bash each other, um, that there's ways, there are better ways to channel uh, negativity. Um, negativity can be channeled in the sense that if, like, for example, if Baltimore looks as bad as they say it looks, go in there and clean it up. Yeah. We have a duty and responsibility to go help those people clean it up. Um, if we have a crisis in the border like we do, we have a responsibility as two parties and two groups of people to get together and to do something purposeful for human, human life. Not that we want everybody coming in here and basically not being accountable, yeah. but if there is a problem down there, fix it. And that's the problem that we have in America, and that's not getting into the political realm. I think everybody would agree that we have a lot of problems to solve, but we have egos that are yeah. equally important, and that means that these egos get into the fruitful work of what made America what we are today, the shining light, the shining bright star that it continues to be, but we falter because of ourselves. Yeah. And you being from another country, you come here and you understand that You've seen issues related to what is going on in the U.K. Right. with the movement of, of, of the integration. And this isn't anything social injustice at mm -hmm. all, but the migration of, of people from the Middle East. And what I tell people is that in America, it's the same thing, that when people come here, you've got to settle in. You've got to learn our culture. You've got to understand what guides us and that your culture that you bring to the table all it does is elevates the culture that's here right, right now. Yeah. And I think we can all agree with that. That's not political. No, either. I totally that's, agree with you. Yeah. That's like down to earth thought process. Yeah. And I just don't see why we um, hammer each other and we're so mean to each other when we live in a, in the greatest nation in the world. Um, and our partners are just as great mm -hmm. too. Yeah. I love being here. Like it's, one of the reasons I started this podcast, I love this state. You know, the, the people just kind of welcome you very well. Um, and we didn't touch on this, but how did you end up in Oklahoma? Well, I ended up in Oklahoma. A cool story. My father was stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Okay. And then my wife is from a little town called Duncan, Oklahoma. And we stayed here and we've evolved and yeah. we've made this our home. It's a great place to live. And, and now I just get an opportunity to uh, partake in something um, that's that's really good for me and my family. Yeah. And and you mentioned earlier that, you know, uh, before we recorded that, you, you know, daughter's now going to OU. Mm -hmm. So big time there. And yeah, she's getting out of class here in a little bit. Yeah. And the thing about it is that, you know how great it is that we live in a great state like Oklahoma, a little hot right now. For those listeners out there, it's 104 <laughs> degrees yeah, no outside. Wind. But you know what? There's people playing golf. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah you're right. <laughs> They're out there hitting a the golf ball. And, and, and they do it every day. Yeah. I mean, they, that, this is what they do. They go to work in the morning and at lunch. Yeah. They have jobs like that where they go and do their thing. And in the afternoon, they, they continue to do some other work. And I just, I'm glad that I can provide freedom to them. Yeah, awesome. Well, again, like... First of all, from everybody listening and myself, thank you for your service. Thank you very uh, much. I'm, I'm sure everybody tells you that, but at the same time, just from us, you know, this is Oklahoma. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and then also, thank you for just kind of doing what you do and just kind of from that event, taking it, just kind of like, okay, what's next? How can I help? Not, oh, this is it now. I'm just going to lay in bed and watch TV all day. Yeah. You know, so thank you enough for that as well. Just, you know, just turning and changing lives and, and using that experience to better others. So well, and congratulations on the show. Thanks. I mean, it's so good. much fun. Yeah, I love doing it. So you know, you're um, doing something purposeful tonight. I'm speaking to about 300 people downtown. And the thing about it is that to me is the inspiring right. uh, aspect of what I do every day. I'm going to go and 
Man, fire up the troops. Yeah. That's you what, fired me up when I heard yeah. you speak so, that first time. I'm ready <laughs> Not to even, do it yeah. tonight. And so awesome. thanks for your time and yeah. and uh, good wishes and, and Godspeed. Appreciate it. Well, yeah. you're awesome. Thank you so much again for your time, Ed. You know, this major Ed, I should say. Uh, but, yeah, again, I, I can't wait to hear the reviews on this and hear everyone's thoughts because they need to hear your story. And I'm sure a lot of people around the States have, but Oklahoma specifically needs to hear the story again. So thanks again for that. Uh, for everyone listening, I'll put all the website links below for Warriors for Freedom and um, Folds of Honor as well. I'm sure you've already heard of that one, but I'll link it below. So. Okay, well, thank you so much. And again, uh, what a great day to be an American and what a great day to be in Oklahoma uh, honoring the sacrifice and supporting uh, those that fight for our freedom. Awesome. Thanks again, mate. Appreciate it. Bye. All right, man. Awesome. Good job, bro. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, Follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram. This podcast was produced by Mike Hearn and Ian Weston. Mixed by Alan Brown, with music by Chad Duro.